Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. It's been quite a week and a half for the Bay Area. It started with strong, dangerous windstorms. Those led to massive power shutoffs and also whipped up damaging fires. Those fires led to some pretty serious evacuations, including in Sonoma County, which experienced the largest evacuations the county has ever seen. I'm Keith Benconi, this is KCBS In-Depth, and today on the program, in the first half, we're gonna take a look at what this unprecedented series of events has meant for Bay Area residents caught up in the crosshairs. Pretty crazy, my mom was freaking out a little, but I told her to keep calm, and we all just headed over here. Then in the second half of the program, we're gonna try to find out what needs to be done to prevent another week like this from ever happening again. They also need to make their power lines and overall systems stronger and smarter in general so that they're better able to withstand these new dangerous conditions. All that and more coming up. First, let's start off with those evacuations forced upon Sonoma County residents by the Kincaid Fire. It's 200,000 evacuees in all, again, making it the largest evacuation in Sonoma County history. KCBS reporter Jeffrey Schaub helped cover those evacuations for us. Uh, he joins us now to talk a little bit about his reporting. And maybe a good place to start, Jeffrey, is remind us what we were looking at Saturday when there were already about 2,000 evacuees that had been forced to flee by the Kincaid Fire. But Saturday is when these mass evacuations really started to kick into high gear. Yeah, that's when Sonoma County Sheriff Mark Essex said you need to get out of Dodge. And basically residents in Healdsburg and Windsor and parts of Santa Rosa had about four hours to gather up their things and leave town. And boy, a lot of them did. But it was, I'm told, chaotic at best trying to uh, get these many people moved out of those communities. But they did. But then the problem became, where are they going to go? So mm-hmm. 101 became a parking lot, as you would expect, in mm-hmm. both directions, north and south Mouth. And um, the Red Cross and others were really challenged to put together uh, evacuation centers that would accommodate a large number of people. And the main evacuation center, as you know, Keith, was set up at the Veterans Memorial Auditorium across from the Sonoma County Fairgrounds in Santa Rosa, where by the end of that day, I think you probably had infected the the numbers grew fairly quickly. I remember when I got there, they said, well, we have about 150 people. And I think later that afternoon, they were up to about 600 people. And uh, so, but then that center eventually, I think overnight became uh, so populated that they had to open up another shelter in the fairgrounds, which was much larger and put people over there. And in addition to that, have a separate shelter there where people could actually stay with, with their pets. I want to talk to you a little bit about the tenor of those evacuees and, and how they took all of this, because obviously a lot of folks have been through this fairly recently, or at least they know people who have been this, through this fairly recently with the massive fires that struck back in 2017. Was that memory of those fires, was that weighing on the minds of residents? Absolutely, absolutely. There were some people that expressed that they were feeling a uh, PTSD-like symptoms, you know, especially those who lost property or barely escaped the flames or knew somebody was injured or killed, that kind of a thing. And I've said before that sometimes, I mean, I lost my home when I was a kid. So I know when you when you smell that that's that burning wood, burning material smell, it never you it, it, it can trigger 
feelings inside of you. And that's what happened for a lot of people. And then there is a sense of general weariness. It's, um, you know, here you are in a, you may be with your family, maybe not. You're in this evacuation center. Maybe you're sleeping in your car. Maybe you're separated from your pet. Um, it's depressing for people. But at the same time, with many people, there was this sense, okay, we got out of there. We, didn't, we wouldn't have wanted to get stuck. We don't want our homes to burn down. Some people said, we don't want to get in the way of firefighters. You know, So here we are. This is the way it's going to be. And we'll just we'll just ride it out. Last point that I want to hit with you. You, uh, of course, were also a reporter that spent a lot of time up in wine country back in 2017. You covered that fire. You also covered the Paradise Fire. You've, you've covered many, many fires in your days. How does this most recent Kincaid fire and uh, and the evacuations that it caused, how, how does that shape up to what you've seen before? How is this different from 2017? Well, 2017, that was a true natural disaster. There was no way to prepare for that, and there was really no way to respond to it. You had these ferocious winds that came through the canyon between Calistoga and Santa Rosa, and it was moving. The fire was just moving so fast, and it engulfed all of those communities, and I think killed 22 people in, in Sonoma County, and I think destroyed 5,000-something or other homes. Um, paradise is unprecedented because you lost an entire city uh, virtually, and I think 26,000 people were were displaced. In this case, you, you had some warning, and you were able to get people evacuated, and for good reason. I mean, it's like um, like the mayor of, of Windsor explained to me the other day. He said there was one point, I think it was on Saturday of last week, that uh, a senior member of CAL FIRE pulled me aside and said, I think you should be prepared for the fact that a big part of your city could be overwhelmed by this fire and that's what they were facing down and uh, so it think about how much worse it could have been if a and the other part of it is the amount of resources that firefighting that the cal fire brought into this thing was almost unprecedented in a short period of time five thousand firefighters you had a dozen or more of these aerial tankers including a 747 and a dc-10 all trying to uh, protect that western flank of the fire so it didn't come in and destroy these communities. So I think that's that's the difference, is that they were able to save these towns, get people out in, in paradise. People could barely escape, and as we know, 80-some-odd people lost their lives. They couldn't get out of their homes. Yeah. And does this speak at all to perhaps lessons learned and uh, experience gained over the last several years? Oh, no doubt. Oh no! In Sonoma County, they've learned so much. Uh, they, they've doubled their their staff in the emergency operations department. They're doing regular practices. They beefed up their communications uh, technologies. They've had to. Um, there's a lot more coordination between local governments, and there's more to come. I mean, there's a lot of technology, excuse me, that's going to need to be deployed in terms of predicting these events and also notifying people uh, when danger's on the way. All right. Well, it was uh, certainly a harrowing week. Uh, Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for bringing as much of it as you could uh, to our listeners. That was uh, KCBS reporter Jeffrey Schaub. Thank you, Keith. (laughs) 
You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into some of the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. This week, we're taking a look back at about a week and a half of unprecedented events in the Bay Area, from the high winds to the power shutoffs to the sudden fires that have caused serious disruption and damage in many areas around the Bay. Up next, is this what they meant when they were talking about the new normal? All of this? We're now facing the possibility that these power shutoffs will become a fact of life for the foreseeable future. In fact, PG&E Chief Executive Bill Johnson has said it could take a decade to complete the work that's needed to improve the utilities grid and significantly decrease the need for these shutoffs. A whole decade. And some are balking at the prospect, including our own governor. We'll hold PG&E, the corporation, accountable. We'll make sure that there are brighter days in the future. We, I assure you, are not allowing any of this to be the new normal, and this will not take 10 years to fix. I can promise you that. Well, there's a promise, but can the governor make good on it? And if he can, what will it take? Well, for some answers to that, we're going to invite onto the program two energy experts who are very familiar with California's grid. First up, we're going to welcome on Michael Wara. He's a senior research scholar at the Woods Institute at Stanford University, where he directs the university's climate and energy program. Michael Wara, welcome on to KCBS In-Depth. Thanks for having me on. And we're also going to invite on Dan Kamen. He's a professor of energy at UC Berkeley and former science envoy for the U.S. State Department. Uh, Dan Kamen, welcome to you as well. Thank you very much. Well, Michael Wara, maybe you could get us uh, started off. Uh, really help our listeners wrap their head around what we're talking about when we're talking about this 10, potentially 10 years of work that is going to be needed for this grid. What does that work look like? How do you make a grid safer and decrease the need for these power shutoffs? Well, in PG&E's view, it involves a couple of steps. Uh, the first, which they took this year, was deployment of a lot of weather stations that are actually attached to their power poles to start measuring the conditions at the poles that lead to failure and the, you know, and potentially ignition of fires. The next step is breaking the grid up into smaller pieces so that you can turn off, you can sort of do a targeted shutoff that really just focuses on the, that, the area that's, that's most exposed to risk and leaves the power on for, uh, you know, surrounding areas. So you might think like, well, turn the power up on the ridge top, but, you know, eliminate a shutoff that would occur for folks living in a valley, for example, that's adjacent to the ridge top. And right now, the grid really isn't built to to be able to do that. And so PG&E has to figure out where the risky places are and then install new switches in their system and maybe reroute some power lines to um, take account of the risk. And they also need to make their power lines and overall systems stronger and smarter in general so that they're better able to withstand these new dangerous conditions. And Dan Kamen, when we're talking about some of those switches and some of those uh, making the grid a little bit smarter, is this the sort of thing that could prevent the need for these massive power shutoffs when they're affecting, uh, uh, impacting a million, two million people? Is this how we get closer to having that more surgical approach? It certainly is. Um, the amount of power we need for the power-hungry uh, communities on the coast, the Bay Area in particular, is large. And so no single action in that list is going to solve the problem. But uh, reduced dependence on these high-voltage transmission lines that are above ground, when we ultimately underground more of them, they'll be much more hardened against these fires. But making our local communities 
sources of more of their own power, having more distributed storage are all things that actually work towards the governor's plan to do this all within a decade. And because the trends towards distributed clean energy, more energy storage are already in place in terms of some state level requirements and some hoped for objectives around using electric vehicles as a backup power supply, about having more distributed storage in buildings, and about having more of these smart interconnections that Michael Wara just mentioned. All of those are things that begin this process and do insulate the communities on the coast with their own power generation capacity and allow turning off of the power lines that are most at risk to be something that is done without blackouts down the road. And Michael Wara, how big of a step is reducing the amount of vegetation that's out there? I mean, it seems like a pretty mundane thing, but all these dead trees that are close to the lines, all this potentially explosive grass fuel, I mean, that can cause some pretty hazardous fire conditions. That's true. And it's been a cause, a leading cause of utility ignitions in the past. And I think it's important for people to understand you know, it, it's not just the trees and, and that are directly adjacent or close to the lines. During the Napa-Sonoma fires in 2017, we saw examples where limbs broke off of trees that were as far as 30 feet away from the power lines um, and then blew into the lines and knocked them on the ground. So PG&E really does face an ongoing challenge in terms of vegetation management. It's pretty boring stuff, you know, trimming trees, but, but it's, it's absolutely critical as we face these high wind events during kind of extended dry falls. All right. Well, now that we have some sense of the work that's going to need to be done over the next several years, perhaps 10, let's take a step back and look at how we got here in 2019, where all this work is still yet to be done. Of course, many have been questioning whether it's taken PG&E too long to make these investments. Perhaps if they had spent this money earlier, Maybe we could have avoided events like we saw in this past week and a half. I put that question to pg and spokesman Jeff Smith, whether or not pg and could have acted sooner. He told me right now their focus is on fixing the problems that exist today. We understand that there is, is a place for also evaluating and looking at, at how things were conducted previously, and we certainly welcome those that are in a position to, to evaluate th- those things, to, to look into that and, and, and do, their, do their jobs and focus on those things. But for us, our primary focus is on what we're going to do going forward and how can we harden our system to ensure that the necessity for this program will either be drastically different or or go away entirely. All right. So they say that they're working on it. They're focusing on fixing the solutions going forward. But how about that, Dan Kamen? I mean, could PG&E have acted sooner to solve some of these problems? Well, I mean, hindsight is perfect. So they certainly could have. um, And there are things that could be done. And it includes everything from Investing more in energy storage, which is now actually required by the Public Utilities Commission. The state has to meet a certain minimum amount of storage available, which gives you backup power on site. Um, And opportunities to put in smarter metering systems and to underground certain critical lines. These are all things that definitely would have helped, but it's a bit unfair to hold PG&E kind of emotionally responsible um, after the fact because they're grappling with a lot of issues. And while we would all like them have to move more quickly, 
ultimately it is a dance between the utilities and the Public Utilities Commission to require things. And we haven't simply required a lot of these things. We want them after the fact. We can blame people for them, and I think there is a lot of blame to go around. But this idea of making the system smarter and more disconnectable, meaning more parts of the grid can island from the, from the system overall, something that Santa Barbara, for example, has pushed towards. These are all parts that make the system more resilient and need to happen going forward. But I do think that the kind of the, the, the retrospective blame game, while fun, isn't really going to help us get on with the job, and that is sit-downs with the regulator, the PUC, and the utilities to have much more clear plans about what they're going to do. And this is what I'm hoping, and I believe that Governor Newsom's comments highlight. We're going to get a more detailed plan. We're going to require more of these investments. And we're going to start targeting these most at-risk fire corridors from our distant energy resources in the Sierras down to the communities on the coast. That's really the effort that will make the biggest difference going forward. Michael Wara, what do you uh, make of that argument that really the focus right now should be on looking forward and not uh, focusing so much on who's to blame for how we got here? Well, I think Professor Cannon's point that it's not just PG&E that missed this risk. You know, it's it's also the Public Utility Commission, all the other interveners in the multiple processes around risk management that occurred after the San Bruno accident that also missed this risk. I, I think that's really important to bear in mind. And, and to me, it goes to a larger set of lessons around the cost of climate change and the way that we should think about the value of reducing emissions, right? Sort of the, you know, trying to solve the underlying problem. No one saw this coming. This is this, this, the outcome, the crisis that we're facing is a result of the interaction of systems that worked pretty well in the 20th century, didn't cause disasters, and a changing underlying weather and climate that all of a sudden we crossed a threshold and catastrophes started happening all too routinely. And I think it just goes to the fact that a lot of the costs of climate change, some some of them we understand and we think we can plan for, like sea level rise, for example. Others are really going to surprise us, and we may not foresee them coming. We may not foresee the interaction between contracts and planning and regulations and these slowly changing forces that we're bringing about because we are not reducing emissions fast enough as a planet. And so I see this as kind of a giant, you know, flashing warning light that we shouldn't have too much confidence about where the harms, that we understand all the harms that are coming at us from climate change. And they may spring up faster than we'd like and much larger than we'd like. Um, and, And I suspect this will not be the last example of that. I totally agree with what Professor Kamen just said about the need to focus on solutions and I would just add to that and say, I don't think it's just the PUC and PG&E that need to be a part of that. I think we really need to be thinking about non-utility solutions, it, mostly because they can be done faster. The PUC process is very slow and kind of um, ponderous in its approach to decision-making. And I think that citizens in Northern California, residents in Northern California, want action fast on this problem. And in order to deliver on the governor's promise to get this solved faster, we're either going to have to break the rules of the PUC or 
we're going to have to look outside that process to the kind of uh, private, you know, non-regulated suppliers of exactly the kinds of solutions that Professor Kamen is talking about, decentralized energy that allows for islanding of these vulnerable places when we need to turn the grid off in order to keep everyone safe. All right. Just want to remind our listeners real quick before we move on and talk about that 10-year timeline, whether or not it really is possible, feasible, or if it could perhaps be done even faster. I want to remind everybody that you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. This week we are talking about this past week or so of power shutoffs that were made by PG&E to uh, avoid as much as possible fire risk conditions, trying to find out whether or not this is the new normal, if we're going to be living this for the foreseeable future, or if there's something that can be done to avoid it going forward. To help us sort all that out, we're speaking right now to Michael Wara. He's a senior research scholar at the Woods Institute at Stanford University. Also speaking to Dan Kamen, he's a professor of energy at UC Berkeley and a former science envoy for the U.S. State Department. Uh, so, Dan Kamen, do you think that we should expect to be living with this for the next 10 years? Because I, I got to tell you, I mean, we've been speaking to a lot of Bay Area residents over the last couple of weeks. It's been a, a pretty rough time on people. Is this really what we can expect going forward? Well, yes and no. Um, all attention right now is on these intense wind events and their um, and the way they make our grid system vulnerable. And so we expect these every year. We know the Santa Ana winds will reoccur. And so it's certainly something we should be planning on. But um, Michael War also highlighted that the risks of climate change and passing through these thresholds of more and more severe events is something that is inherently uncertain. And so right now we're focused on this. We may discover that issues of water or other issues start to crop up and they will be equally or more severe. And so the real question is, how do we make our infrastructure more resilient to these risks. Just a, a final thought before we uh, move on and wrap up uh, on the grid as it stands. I mean, am, am, am I right in thinking that many of these lines are decades and decades and decades old? California at this point is being serviced by uh, a grid that is pretty old in a lot of places. Is that right, Dan Cameron? Well, it's true, but it's not unusually so. Um, our grid is not uh, older or newer than most areas. The real question is, how do we take advantage of the revolution in uh, solid-state devices, the hardware that's in our cell phones and in all of the sensors we have, so that we can get real-time data back from the grid um, and feed it not only to um, the California Independent System Operator Office in Folsom, but to lots of the communities, to local fire departments, so that we're much more reactive to looking at frequency and voltage fluctuations on the lines to tying this into data on winds. Um, and you heard from Michael about some of the tree limbs that were blown such long distances that it's unrealistic to think that in advance you're going to cut all those tree lines back. What's, what's more realistic is pre-deploying pg e and fire department teams to critical areas where we know they're under wind threat. That's something we can do today, and it happens in other parts of the world. Wind is not unique to California. Um, I hate to tell people at the utilities that, but it's something that we can do better, and it provides an immediate response um, that allows us to be more resilient while we build in these things that will simply take more time to put together. Very last question I want to put to you both before we wrap up. So bringing things back into the here and now and the immediate week and a half or so that we all just lived through. Obviously, it's impossible to roll the tape back and know what would have happened had we not turned 
off power for uh, the days that we did. But we do know that even with the power off, some fires did start in the last couple of weeks. And there is some evidence that those fires, including the Kincaid Fire and some fires in the East Bay in the Bay Area, were linked to PG&E equipment. Have to emphasize that still being investigated. We don't know anything for sure, but PG&E has acknowledged that as a possibility. So knowing what we know at this point, what would you say was gained by the power shutoffs that were made? I think that, you know, while we have seen significant fires over the last week, um, you know, one that looks to have been caused by PG&E possibly, um, you know, we've not seen anything like what happened in the 2017 Napa-Sonoma fire siege where PG&E caused, lines caused 17 fires, maybe 18. We'll see what the jury trial says about the Tubbs fire. Um, and at least the evidence we have so far suggests that the wind caused significant damage to PG&E overhead lines, the kind of damage that in the past has ignited fires. And so I actually think this PSPS approach is probably working if anything, may need to be expanded because of the failure of that 230 kV line. Um, But I would also second what Professor Kamen said, that this has been a big wake-up call, and now everyone's paying attention to this issue. I mean, it was was out there in the public record for a year prior to this event. PG&E's been saying they're going to do this, and then now they've done it, and now we can all respond to that and respond constructively. You know, when life hands you lemons, you got to make lemonade, and that's what we got to do as a state. And we can, and we have the resources, and we have the technology. So we just need to get to work. Yeah. So as bad as it was, could have been worse, I guess, is the headline there. Absolutely. It could have been a lot worse. No one is dead. Once again, we were speaking to Michael Wara, senior research scholar at the Woods Institute at Stanford University, and Dan Kamen, professor of energy at UC Berkeley. This is KCBS In-Depth. Right now, we're discussing what it would take to make future safety power shutoffs unnecessary. We have one more guest to speak to because, of course, well, it's all well and good to lay out what PG&E needs to do to harden its grid to wildfires. And as we just heard, a lot of those steps are pretty clear, pretty well understood. But you can't forget that PG&E is currently in bankruptcy. So whatever the utility is going to do, It'll be doing that while dealing with that bankruptcy. So how will that complicate this work? Well, I put that question to frequent KCBS guest, Professor Severin Bornstein. He is the faculty director at the Energy Institute at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. Bornstein says the bankruptcy will make this work more complicated in a couple of ways. One is there are a lot of competing demands on the finances of PG&E right now. Uh, the obviously the victims of the fires and those lawsuits, um, but also the shareholders who have lost a lot of money. Uh, the holders of their bonds are quite concerned about getting paid. So there's this immediate concern about how the money gets used and how much is going to be available for investments in infrastructure hardening and monitoring and so forth. But there's a second issue, which is that PG&E is going to be reorganized into a different organization. It may be a successor PG&E owned largely by the same shareholders. It may be uh, a new 
for-profit entity owned by some other new investor. The governor has uh, talked about Berkshire Hathaway coming in. Or it may be a some sort of a public power entity. And within that, there are even discussions of possibly breaking up the utility into multiple smaller utilities. So all of that uncertainty about who's going to own it and who's going to be responsible for the various areas, I think, makes it even harder to reach what are going to be some pretty hard decisions about spending a lot of money uh, to uh, make this a safer utility. Mm. Now, at the same time that we talk about bankruptcy, we also have to talk about all these calls that are out there right now to change how PG&E is run, whether we're talking about calls for cities perhaps to buy up portions of PG&E's grid, or we're talking about the possibility that PG&E goes from being a regulated ratepayer-owned utility to a utility that's owned by ratepayers. There's a lot of pretty big ideas out there to change how PG&E is run. I was wondering if you could reflect for a moment on this management question and the importance of getting that question right. If we are going to change how, PG, how PG&E is run in a big way in the coming years, how might that decision affect these other questions of making the grid more safe and more modern? I think it's critically important to get the management and culture of the organization right. Uh, it's clear that there have been huge problems at PG&E not just at the top, but throughout the organization in uh, safety culture not really being instilled uh, and record-keeping not being really emphasized in the way it needs to be. Uh, but I also don't think that any one organizational form is a magic bullet. I don't think that we are going to magically solve this problem by simply going to a publicly-owned utility or um, going to a utility that is a co-op. Utilities exist in all of these forms, and some of them are very good, and some of them are not good. Uh, We've seen some horrendously bad publicly owned utilities. The most recent example is PREPA, the Puerto Rican utility, which is publicly owned and was disastrous after their hurricane. And we've seen some pretty well-run utilities of all, all of these types. So I don't think that converting it to a publicly owned utility is a magic bullet. It may help, but the bigger issue is going to be getting management and leadership in there that really focuses on a safe and reliable system while still controlling costs. So we need to keep that in mind while having this debate about public ownership versus private or co-op or and which and whether we should break it up into smaller entities or not and that was professor severin bornstein he is the faculty director at the energy institute at uc berkeley's haas school of business this has been kcbs in depth remember you can find past editions of the program online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Thanks for listening. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 1069, KCBS.